chapter 13. First seven verses is dealing with... Uh, Audrey, I've got a... I can't get out of this. I'm locked. I'm locked in. I'm landlocked. <laughs> it's right there's your outline. I'm sorry. I would have given it to you, but I would probably... Uh, knowing me, I'd trip over cords. <laughs> the, the desk over here would be falling down, and then the player here, this... Uh, Laptop would be falling off the desk. Well, I, I would have been here on time, but I think my printer is the slowest thing, and then I had to change ink. But the newsletter's hot off the press. Well, hey, oh. we'll forgive you then. Okay, if it's the newsletter, all right, all right. <laughs> She's got them handy right there. Matter of fact, why don't you just hand those out as we're just we're just starting here. We just got underway. Um. The Israelites and their king, Saul, are um, having terror struck in their hearts. And uh, Israel is going to become a stench or an odious stench to uh, the Philistines here as we look at it tonight. Um, but you're going to see the fear, sheer fear from the Israelites who, again, need to trust in God and in His leadership, ultimately. Because they just had a victory beating the Ammonites sometime before this, maybe a couple of years. Uh, And we don't even know how long that is, but it wasn't very long. They, you know, had a stunning victory. And so we're coming off a tremendous high. But like we say, chapter 12 ended very somber, very serious. And now we're going to see the seriousness of God and Samuel against what Saul did. So the first part is how Israel becomes odious to the Philistines. Uh, In verse 1, very controversial here, right in the first verse. And it really shouldn't be. It really means nothing. But it is interesting because I'm going to have you guys read in a moment what your translations read. And not all of them are going to agree. You have the Amplified American AMP? AMP is Amplified. Yeah, mine just has blanks. So Has what? Blanks. Oh. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Nothing. Your first verse? Saul was blank years old, and he reigned blank in two years. Does it say blank? No, it's blank. Dot, dot, dot. Saul was (laughs) years old. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, you, you guys are all reading this, right? Yeah. You're reading that first I verse. That. Mine just says Saul reigned one year when he had reigned two years. It doesn't say age in there anywhere. That's what mine says, too. Mine yeah. just third. Mine's well, my notes say that some don't even have that verse in there. Yeah. I'm using my right. phone, so it has every verse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Three to what does yours say? I switched mine to the easy one, <laughs> and it actually says... 30 years old. Okay, I got the New American Standard. It says Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. 
And he reigned 42 years over Israel. So that might be a pretty good one, but we don't know. What happened is that a copier of the Hebrew, as it somewhere along down the road, <laughs> what, uh, what they did is they put it down and maybe they made some kind of a, a scribal mistake or they didn't quite get what it was in Hebrew that was supposed to be. And so therefore, it turns out to be different in different translations. And how old was Saul when he was king? Well, it says there 30, but I will tell you, we don't really know. Josephus says 20. Oh, uh, well, that's interesting. And there, that's a guy like that would be a thousand years later, a historian. Uh, but he has pretty good sources, being a, a Jew. Uh, but the uh, it, you will have italics there. If you do have a number, he was 30 years old. That means, not for sure. Uh, good chance that he was probably somewhere in that area. And I think in Acts, oh, it's Acts 13 or something like that, we actually see that I think he lived to be like 70, somewhere around that, that realm. And he probably did. He reigned, I think he did reign 40 years. Maybe that's what it says in, in the Acts passage. So, uh, somebody would probably have asked me that because you're reading your translation and Penny would, would have said, how do you how do you know that? Mine have blanks. And so somebody else would have said, what? Mine says one year. Well, that's, that's right. It, he, it was like... One translation said he was one year old. Yeah. Well, and that sure doesn't make sense. No, because he but, wasn't even called. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The New King James Version does a pretty good job with it. Um, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, somebody else had that a while ago. Is it yours? Okay. Is that New King James you use? No? I don't think okay. so. Okay. No, it's an NIV. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. Uh, going down into verse 2 there, 1 and 2. Uh, at any rate, um, oh, here's another one. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel where mine says he reigned 42 years over Israel. So, we won't spend any more time on that. Somebody would say, well, how can the Bible be inspired? Well, it is. And every word is true. The only thing is, we don't have the original Hebrew, and that's what that was written in. And by the time manuscripts came, you had copyists who put things that sometimes maybe they didn't quite understand the language there, and got it kind of maybe backwards or um, and a lot of times when you see where the Bible seemingly has errors and it doesn't but something like this it's usually dealing with numbers is what it is and you know as well as I do we have trouble with numbers sometimes and we get them backwards or confused or you know write them down wrong or sometimes you have a mirror image and write them Well, and like you said, you know, you have to ask yourself, how how really important is this particular? Yeah, 
Yeah, to, to this text, it really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change any doctrine whatsoever. So every once in a while, we'll see some things like that in Scripture. And at first, to me, whenever I was first starting to read the Bible seriously, it didn't make me doubt the Bible, but at the same time, it was just perplexing to me. And then I'd start trying to read it from other people's views, and then it really got me confused, because everybody had a different idea. So, and you see it, we all have different translations, and that's what humans do whenever they misunderstand something. Not on purpose, but and that shows you that the Bible is true, and it's honest. It's still written down by men, although it's the very Word of God that's given to men to put it. But we have translations. By the time you get to English, uh, what, uh, three to, to 3,000, 4,000 years, 3,000 years later, you know, and this is all we can find where it differs? Does the, Pretty uh, incredible. Do evolutionists or, you know, the opposers of Scripture oh, bring this? Oh, probably up? so, yeah. Because yeah. there are a few yeah. through the Old Testament where it, it's Hebrew. And you have some guys come along and regardless of what it is, errors or whatever, on, on their part, it's not an original, but it's something that really has nothing to do with what even the text is, is really about. It's, it's, it's a numerical value. And so, uh, so, what is he really trying to get at here? Well, I think it's trying to put us in the place of where this is at. I tend to think that this was like a year or two years later. He lives to be about 70 or something. He rules for about 40 years. Gives us an idea. And, uh, by the way, he rules longer than King David. You know? Yeah. Sure did. I think probably uh, longer than just about anybody. And this is the man who, because of this chapter here, and further on with his relationship with David we see the evilness of Saul. But we talked about this last week, and we spent a pretty good time on it. Was he a believer or not? And when we were done with it, we said, well, he could be. He very well could be. But we still don't know. I'm glad it's in God's hands. He judges this. If it would have been me, I would have said no. But what would I have been based it on? Well, his actions. But fruit does play a big part. We are fruit inspectors, but we're not judges. You know, we are uh, expected to, to judge the fruit. And if somebody doesn't look like they are believers and they're affecting the church, we are to do something about that. Didn't it's a serious David thing. Did refer to him as the Lord's anointed? Yeah, he sure did. And he was was anointed. Yeah, to be to be king and we saw where he was, he was prophesying he had god's spirit and, and he was obedient from the very outset but we see that change real quick from here on out you don't really see much good about Saul we've seen about basically the good that we're going to see but he's going to rule for a long time so that's Verse 1. Now I'm glad we're only taking 14 verses tonight because we spent a half an hour on one verse that I didn't really intend to because it doesn't matter too much, does it? God's Word, every verse is important, but this verse is really not 
more important than what we're going to be going with now. That said, nobody's going to come up with a question on on that now because you guys are good. I can't ever get the wool pulled over your eyes because there's always somebody saying, what about this verse here? What about this? And I knew somebody would have done it. That's why I took a long time to study that verse. And then when I was done with it, I could say, I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Now, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, which 2,000 were with Saul and Mitchmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeath of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines, and that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Okay, remember that victory over the uh, Ammonites that we looked at in chapter 11? Stunning victory. Well now, and he was... How many did Saul get together? 330,000. Now he has a standing army of 3,000. Quite a reduction, isn't it? How did he get those 330,000? He threatened them. <laughs> I'll take your tractor away. <laughs> your, your, your animals. And so, you know, uh, they, they came and thought they won. Now, regarding the Philistines, it is rather difficult to understand what is happening here. What's the situation with the Philistines? Hey guys, care for notice? <laughs> yeah, I've got to keep my uh, my mouth moist and uh, throat moist, and so I'm always drinking something up here. And every time, whenever I'm setting up a video, they'll have these suggestions. YouTube does, and they'll have me do a, this. Now, how would you like to see that on the video? Little little capsule, you know. There's this dude up there drinking. What is it? Some kind of religious thing, you know? What's this? Taking the cup. Anyway, I thought that was neither here nor there. I just wasted our time. What's that? Well, no, no. It's whenever uh, they'll give you three pictures in there of it. It's not whenever I'm first starting it. Somewhere along in there, it's usually a stupid shot of me anyway. But the worst ones are whenever I'm drinking what every week there's always one. I'm going, what am I doing there? I have to choose one of these to to get it on there, otherwise I'd leave it blank. But anyway, I'm having a time tonight, guys, I'll tell you what. Let's move on. How about the Philistines? What's going on with the Philistines? Well, the Israelites are slaves of the Philistines. They are slaves. They did beat the Ammonites, but they're slaves of the Philistines. But, you know, the Philistines have prevailed over the Israelites in war. In chapter 10, uh, you have Saul, and he's informed by Samuel that he is God's choice for Israel's king, and he prophesies in an Israelite city 
but there's a garrison there or kind of a, an outpost that the Philistines have. See, the Philistines are running this thing. Israel has their own little area where they live, but really they are not their own. Philistines rule them. Yet in chapter 11, which is where we looked at last week, we're told of the Ammonite attack and a great Israelite victory. And you say, okay, what's going on here? Uh, Should they be able to do that? How can they muster up all of these troops that they had and continue to be underneath the Philistines? If you were the Philistines, wouldn't you be a little bit upset about this? How does Saul maintain a standing army now? Not of 330,000, but 3,000. Why would the uh, Philistines even let him have an army? Well, we might be able to understand the situation a little better if we talk about this. Because we, this will get us the idea of really what's going on. You can say, well, Israel is, is their own Israel now, right? No, they're not. Um, by the time you get to King David, of course, he does a lot of damage with the Philistines. and Saul, is that's part of his job to do that. But they're surrounded by all sides uh, of them. Whether well, the it be north... The Philistines aren't all that bright anyway. No. I mean, they let those people yeah. go and get help. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, their confidence is high, though. They have a lot of pride. That's exactly what we were talking about last week. It was an arrogance. Yeah. You know, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Get your... And... <laughs> Last time we went in battle, we defeated you and took your God. So yeah, it seems strange. Now that that was the Ammonites, though. Back in chapter eleven, they defeated them. The Philistines would let them have an army. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. they were just a bunch of people wandering around. Now we're getting the idea. Yeah. You've got you've got them over there on the coast, west of them. Over on the east, you had those Ammonites, you have the Moabites, you have all those other nations all around them. They're surrounded. They are landlocked. They're locked in between all of these guys, and they all want a piece of them. Um, here's what's going on. Sounds like today. It, it does. <laughs> doesn't change. It hasn't changed. The Philistines dwell in Philistia. Western border. The Ammonites are located across the Jordan River over to the east. And there was Jabesh Gilead, which is, I think we were talking about that last week, over in the northeastern uh, part of Israel. It's about 20 miles from the, the border of Ammon. It was far from Philistia. So you have the Ammonites over here. They're very aggressive. A lot of aggressive neighbors. Philistines are over on the coast on the west side. Now, Philistines had technology. Of course, they were great with the metals and the iron and such. Um, That's why the Philistines, they think they're better than anybody anyway. But they kind of are smart in the sense that, okay, way over here are the Ammonites. We're over here. We've got a buffer zone here. The Israelites are between us to because I'm sure the Philistines and the uh, Ammonites probably wouldn't be the best of friends, but it, it, it's a buffer. 
that's a good idea that the Philistines would do there, still controlling the Israelites, but letting the Israelites have their own little thing in a maybe a, a tame way, maybe. Um, the Israelites, if they were weakened by war against like the Ammonites, well, that's okay with the Philistines, because even if they win their battle, they're going to lose people. You know, so, it, you know, Philistines gain further control in that way. So the fact that Saul would have just a little small force, 3,000, it's, it's not a threat to the Philistines. It's not a big deal. Um, they can be numbered as the sands of the seashore. By the way, it, we will get the numbers that they uh, have against them. They have 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. Pretty incredible. I mean... 36,000 right there yeah. with chariots and horses and what, versus 3,000. Chariots carry like what? At least two to three people on there? You might have you might have two. One, you two. Got one yeah. driving sure. it. And then you have what? One throwing a spear or shooting arrows. So that's there. a big number. Yeah. Huge number. Some people try to doubt that, but I don't have any problem with that at all. They had a, a huge amount of people there, and, and their standing army was incredible uh, number-wise. So why does Saul retain such a, I guess you could say, a, a standing army? Well, 3,000 men, they're tolerated. A larger standing army would not be. It's about as good as they're going to get. Uh, Saul doesn't seem willing to uh, trouble the waters so he's just kind of getting along with the Philistines. They beat the Ammonites previously. So it's like Saul is just kind of fitting in with the, with the mode that it is. But, you know, they want Saul to be able to take the people out and destroy other people. That's the reason they wanted a king. They wanted him to defend against the Ammonites because they were looming large. Philistines are letting them live, so hey, everything's okay. Jonathan has a different idea. Jonathan is the son. He's godly. We know he becomes very good friends with David. So, 2,000 of the army is with Saul, 1,000 are with Jonathan. And now you're probably going to ask, well, how old is Jonathan? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And I think probably it's further along in Saul's uh, kingship here than just maybe a year later or so. Maybe he had Jonathan whenever he was about 15, maybe. And let's say Saul is like 30, 32, something like that. Well, Jonathan could be 15, 17 years old. By the way, teenagers got married uh, for the most part when they were like 13. 13? Yeah, Mary was probably 14, 15. They still uh, do that in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah well, he, you know, you hear that today and you think backwards, but really. You know, you look at males and females, and I just got to thinking about this. It's like they're already about 12 and a half, 13 years old. 
was listening to Focus on the Family this morning, and there was a lady on there that wrote, Liz Curtis Higgs, I think. She wrote Bad Girls of the Bible, and then the Really Bad Girls of the Bible, and then the Good Girls of the Bible. That would be Elizabeth and Mary and Anna. You know, <laughs> it's pretty good. And then she was given a little bit of culture. I don't know about the 12, 12 and a half years old, but they are pretty well equipped and ready to go about that time, are they not? Mm-hmm. Then I got to thinking, well, you know, and I have heard very early age for Mary, you know, as, as low as 13 before. So uh, let's say Saul's married at 15, has a son. Uh, he's 30, 32, let's say. His son's 15, in the teens. He's leading a thousand men. Uh, could be a little bit older. Like we say, we look at that first verse and it really doesn't give us the years anyway. So, you know, if you're trying to do some math here, you really are just kind of guessing at best. There's nobody who can really tell us here. So I had to come up with that one because I know somebody was going to ask me. Because I asked it. I'm going, what's going on? I tried to figure it out. Well, anyway. It doesn't defeat what the story is about, though, does it? And it's all true. That would make sense why Jonathan took such a liking to David because of his Mm. older age and, you know, the more wisdom and seeing David maybe probably felt like, you know, like that maybe older brother, younger brother connection, maybe even like a father-son connection, deep the deep friendship between like an older man and a younger man, like I can see that now. Because I, for some reason, I always thought that they were roughly around the same age. I don't know why. Anytime I read about King David or these people, I always just think that they're always old. <laughs> I, yeah, they were uh, They were pretty young. Uh, we know that whenever David was chosen, he didn't become king immediately. Saul went to, uh, was king for like 40 years. Yeah. David is chosen pretty shortly after, seems like, and most of that time, he's chasing David. Yeah. Instead of beating the enemies, he's trying to beat David because David's going to take his job. But he really didn't. Right. He, never, he never took his job because he was the anointed one. So it, it was like God let him live a, a longer period or longer period of time than, than David lived. So... You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, So Jonathan attacks the enemy. Now remember, they have these garrisons, these outposts in Israel. They're Israelite cities. And you've seen that before, haven't you? Where it says there was a garrison there. And and yet Saul was prophesying. And I, I was wondering, why is he prophesying where the enemy's at? And he gets away with it. Well, that's just the way they have places where they just kind of watch. America uh, has outposts all over like the Middle East. Or after World War II, America had different bases and they watch over those countries, either to protect or to keep some kind of rebellious activities from going on. We've always done that here in America, haven't we? Played a big part. That's what uh, Philistia is doing here. Philistines do that. Well, it seems that his actions here of Saul, I think they're prompted by faith. 
I think it's all done out of faith, and he knew what the Bible said in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, where you know there's a divine chastening on Israel, but yet at the same time, God uses Israel to defeat those enemies and breaks their shackles. And so Jonathan is thinking, let's go after them, let's take their outpost. Boy, he doesn't ask his dad. He doesn't tell anybody. And he goes, I think you're going to have trouble here. That's exactly what's going on. And that's what Jonathan wants. We got to get this stirred up. Because his dad's not doing anything. He's just going along. So, once again, he didn't want to be king in the first place. He's reluctant, isn't he? He's reluctant. Now, he wasn't reluctant whenever he took on the Ammonites, though. And that's what we just studied last week. He went out and he threatened his people because they were threatened by the Ammonites. And he said, let's get it together. I mean, he took rulership. This was a king in action. And he was under the leadership of God and he knew it. And he gave all the credit to God. That was a mighty man of God there. And now, shortly after that, he becomes a dove. He's not a hawk, he's a dove. That's not what he is hired for. But, you know, the people want him to lead, but they don't want to be in the, in the army, you know. <laughs> uh, but they probably couldn't have been anyway. They don't want big numbers there, the Philistines don't. So, um, the king is not to facilitate the Israelites' subjection here, to the surrounding nations, but is to be used to God to throw off the shackles. So Jonathan is unwilling to accept the things as they are. As they are, what what is that called? Whenever, it, what's that? Status quo. Status quo. Oh. Saul is status quo. Jonathan is not. Let's go. Let's go get him. You know. So. He takes on the Philistine garrison at Geba. That's six miles north of Jerusalem. Now, there's no temple at Jerusalem now. There will be before too long when Solomon comes around after David. But uh, that's in that area. And so here we have it. This may be very well the same garrison, like we said, where Saul had prophesied and now all of a sudden... You've got his son attacking this place. Uh, it is an Israelite area, but Philistines really are running it. So Saul's response to Jonathan's attack, and the Philistines arrive now. They're coming. They're getting together. They're mustering it up. And his reaction is necessary. And Rather than look bad here, or to look weak, which really what it is, he's very passive. And rather than look looking passive, it looks like he had this going along all the time. But I don't think Jonathan and him had ever gotten together. It says Saul blows the trumpet. And that's where the king says, we're going to take charge. Come together, all 3,000 of you. <laughs> Do it or die trying. <laughs> right. And I'm not so sure this is really what he wants to do. 
But, uh, you know, this situation in chapter 13 is so different than chapter 11. It's like, what happened? Why? What, why? Why are you like this, Saul? Um, they're tentative. Any, any ones that are going to fight for him, they're not really wanting to do it. They're just like Saul in this sense. Why, why do this? We're okay. Uh, once they find out the size of the Philistine <laughs> army, they start ditching it. They are hightailing it out of there. Let's look at it here. Verse 5. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. So we're talking more than 36,000. We're talking tens and tens and tens of thousands. More and more and more come. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of beth When the men of Israel saw that, they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves. What they do now is they start running. They find caves, thickets, cliffs, cellars, pits. They're hiding in holes in the ground. They don't have a chance. They do have God. But, you know, they just have a problem with that. Whatever they see is basically what it is. <laughs> that was it. That was the end of it all. Isn't this what we do? Don't we cower in fear sometimes when the grand old enemy looks too overwhelming, whether it be temptation or whether it be some kind of fear that is put upon us or worry, disappointment, we're downcast, we just give it all up, we hide. This this is the flesh. Had to put in a little bit of uh, application there, right? We've been looking at it all the way through like that. Well, uh, what's happening here is that the Israelites are terrified. So they're out in the desert and they're out hiding and wherever they can. We don't have a chance. The Philistines have assembled. The response of the Philistines would be absolutely predictable because <laughs> they know they can't lose. That's what they think. And so, you know, they had defeated the Israelites before. They have them under captivity. And Jonathan has done this thing, and it's viewed as an attack against the whole nation. Well, I guess whenever 911 happened, and, uh, you know, the towers got hit, we took that as uh, a hit against the whole nation even though it was in one little city block and then a couple other places. And who knows what all went down there at that time that really went down. Uh, it's kind of interesting to study that too. And at any rate, we'll go move on further with our Bible study. But we're just saying that what happens is that, yeah, this is an attack on the whole nation. And... Uh, Would would you would you say that this was odious 
to the Philistines. Was this a stench? I think it's in verse 4 where it says, All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. They're a stench. And uh, I think that pretty well tells it this is what the uh, Philistines could do. They could blow them away. They came up against Israel. They're camping at Michmash. Um, now Saul, and that's where uh, Saul was at, stationed just recently with his soldiers anyway. Saul seeks to gather his army, summons the people, assemble at Gilgal, Samuel uh, had given him instructions uh, on several things, but as we move on a little bit further here, you see how this produces. And of course, you get into the war and ultimately the victory. But we have a little kind of an interlude here. Some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead, verse 7. So they cross over east on the Jordan side, what we know as Jordan, Ammon. Uh, But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. These are God's people. They're trembling. They're afraid. They're hiding. They're running. Now, we take a little bit of a, I guess you could say, a little detour. You'd think, oh, we're getting into wartime now. And the Israelites are going to get destroyed. No. Uh, Saul actually knows that what you need to do is get everybody together. Let's get an offering up here and sacrifices. Let's go to God. He knows about that. Uh, And maybe it's a little bit of a magic thing. Hey, if we do the offering to God, then He'll deliver us. Well, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> now, went verse 8. Now, he had waited, waited seven days accorded, uh, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Samuel didn't come the first day or the second day. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Now, here it is, the seventh day. What's happening with the people? They're all, they're all running, hiding. More and more. He started with a few thousand, and now it's like, how many are, do you have? A few hundred maybe? I don't know. 27, sir, I counted. <laughs> really? 27, sir? <laughs> that would be a good day at Grace Community Church. <laughs> Seven days. That, that's really the idea. This is like us. When we want God to show up or we think that He should be here by now, He needs to be doing something. And He hasn't done it yet. (laughs) Oh, about the election. (laughs) He's going to hold this out as long as He wants. We could apply that to anything, couldn't we? We have fun with that, you know. Actually, at the same time, we're going, oh. Okay, here we go. You shall go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I'll come down to you to offer burnt offerings, sacrifice offerings. You will uh, wait seven days until I come to you. Show you what you should do. In First Samuel ten eight, it says that. 
well, we have this going on here. Did that ever happen before? I'm not so sure. All I know is that Saul is to wait seven days. Okay, it's the seventh day. It's noontime now. It's two o'clock. He's still not here. The people are going. And now he's thinking, they're all going to be gone when he shows up. Where's he at? Now he's late. He's not late. He's on time. I'm telling you, Samuel is on time. He's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. It's a seven-day waiting period. The the instructions here, they're specific. It's the way it's to be. Samuel will indicate to Saul what he should do. He might come there and say, Saul, I think we need to go home. <laughs> no, I doubt it. Saul is agonizing as he watches his army shrink and shrink and shrink till like there's how many left? 27? 27. <laughs> That's the, uh, the AV version. The authorized version? This is called the Avel version. <laughs> Saul is shaking in his boots. Tell you what, I can understand. I get it. You know, you're surrounded. And what are we going to do now? Well, here's where we get 8 through 14. And this is the famous foolish sacrifice. And here it is. I, I spent seven verses on this, which is half. In 50 minutes. Now we got the best part, and I'm going to do it in five minutes. What'd you say? Or ten. Or ten. <laughs> That's right. Now, I think that clock up there is wrong anyway. Okay. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. We're in verse 9 now. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Okay, it says, guys, we got to get it going. I wonder if it says it took him seven days to finally decide to do it himself. Yeah, like Jonah in the belly of the, the fish. You know, it took him... How many days before he decided to repent and then flop, out he comes. And he's like, all right. (laughs) Saul shows up right after it's all said and done. Samuel does, right? And he does. And look at this. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, this is not the eighth day. It's like getting close to the end of the day. (laughs) But... uh, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, check this out, Samuel came. Samuel showed up, like he said he was going to do. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, because I saw that the people were scattering from me. Is that true? Yeah. And that you did not come within the appointed days. Well, right there all the way to the very end of it. The Philistines were assembling at Mishmash. 
Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Oh, he forced himself. I wasn't going to do it. Probably not. But you weren't supposed to do it at all. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You know what that means? Instead of being the Davidic kingdom and Jesus coming from that kingdom, it would have been from Saul's kingdom. Hmm. Quite a difference, isn't there? But now your kingdom shall not endure. After you, that's it. He goes on for several years, decades after this. The Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart. He already has him. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Rather stinging from Samuel, isn't it? Saul manages to make it through six days and most of the seventh. Saul is at his wit's end. He knows how much danger he's in, how urgent this situation is. Imagine he's saying, I'm going to give him 30 more minutes. I know he's going to come. He's got to come. Okay, guys, get it going. We've got to get this offering going. So as the people scatter, Saul begins to take matters in his own hands. The king disobeys a command. He offers a sacrifice. 1 Samuel 7, 9 and 10. This is whenever there was an offering done by Samuel. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. That's the Philistines, the same enemy. What did Samuel do? He did the offering and they, the Israelites didn't have a chance. He prays to God and what does God do? Raises up the thunder and light and they start fighting and killing themselves like so often throughout Scripture and then the Israelites then go chasing after them. You know, they kill much of their own people. If God did that before, do you think Samuel knew about that? Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Well, in chapter 10, verse 8, says, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice, peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. God would take care of it. He got the word from the prophet 
He got the very Word of God. And, you know, every appearance is that Saul offers the burnt offering himself. No doubt, he's doing it. Uh, Saul seems to place great importance on sacrificing and offerings, and that is very true. Um, You know, in 1 Samuel 7, the people were coming together and they were coming there to at, uh, at that mitzvah to repent and renew their covenant. So, same kind of thing. And uh, Philistines are encircling and about to attack. God will take care of His people. Samuel would tell him what to do, how easy it would be to look at this offering also, and it means, oh, it's it's our deliverance. If we do this, and that in itself turns into an idol, doesn't it? God has removed the the Ark of the Covenant. They don't really have any access. They're not. It's not around them. So that's no longer a magical thing. And now it's the burnt offerings, the sacrifices. Well, Israel had trouble with that all the way through. They offered up sacrifices daily, but what was wrong with their hearts? So those sacrifices were a stench to God. So here we are, no wonder. Saul is eager because he knows that you offer sacrifices. you know. But Samuel arrives. It seems apparent that Saul waited for a few minutes and then he said, that's it. Uh, he does the job himself. And then he... He comes out and tells, he greets um, Samuel. And, you know, of course, Saul asks what he's done, and, of course, we know. What's that? Samuel Samuel asked him that, yeah. Saul's explanation just falls flat to the ground. You know, you can just see that all the way through here. And he forced himself to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel has quite the rebuke to Saul. Samuel's not impressed at all. And he has stern words. He says it's foolish. That means it's not anything from God. He's doing his own thing. You know, the, the, the fool says there is no God. Well, here is light is almost as bad as not being a god because uh, he, you know he's going to take the matter into his own hands rather than having God's man to come and do that. This king has a different job to do than the priest. The priest instructed the kings on the spiritual matters, and the king was to know God's word. And he was to know his position and what the priest positions are. Uh, so, he was foolish. He accomplished the exact opposite of what should have been done. He was disobedient. He didn't obey the commands, it says here. His dynasty is going to come to an end. It cost him his whole dynasty. Nobody will ever sit on his throne again. Disobedience. Foolishness. Wow, God. Like we started this with what? You know, it doesn't seem so bad what Samuel did. He meant right. Or did he really? Did I say Samuel again? I get these guys messed up all the time. Samuel and Saul. So you have to focus on who you're talking about. Yeah. 
So Saul's destiny as king is sealed. Uh, it's not going to happen. You know, we get the seriousness of Saul's actions. We need to understand, first of all, this passage in the light of what God first declared about kings in the book of Deuteronomy 17. Not enough time tonight. We've done it every week, but we, in verses 18 through 20, really, it really is showing the separation of powers. The king, the priest, the law. The king is to know that law. He's to be subject to it. It's to be a constant guide to him. And those were specific instructions that um, Samuel had told Saul, I think at the end of chapter uh, 12, wasn't it? Uh, Or before he had done that. So he made sure that Saul is to know that Word of God. Yeah, that's the instructions there. Then there's the instructions of like what the Deuteronomy 17 is about. Right. Read it every day. Exactly. Saul has no excuse. No excuse. It was a willful act of disobedience. Like Saul, sometimes we have no sense of our calling. And when we do that, we're headed for trouble. Another thing is God's commands are a test of our faith and obedience, aren't they? And Christian liberties are a test of our faith. So, anyway, you look at this, um, it's a sad day. Because you you will not see Saul in the same vein that we saw him last week being victorious most of it, the rest of it is a sad expose throughout many chapters here in Samuel. And uh, we say uh, he was a king who was to be leading the people and he set a terrible example. He wasn't trusting in God, wasn't trusting in what the word from God had come from in Samuel. And even though he meant well, what did it really mean? He did it his own way. He did it his own way. He did a Frank Sinatra. He did it a Paul Lanka, didn't he? <laughs> and so it goes. That's the plight of man. And we can say, well, God sure should have given him a break. He was like a like a sergeant on privates, you know. You know, come on, you know, I mean, really, God, are you going to take this seriously? That seriously? Basically, he just let fear take over. He was just afraid. He did, didn't he? Yeah. He didn't have faith in God. And before, he must have had faith. And now we see Jonathan make an act of faith in doing what he did. And God honors Jonathan in this coming up. And we see that you know we could have taken this war out. Well, obviously, 14 verses was way too much for our hour because we went a little over five minutes long again. I thought, well, finally we're going to have one week where I can cut about five minutes off and take a break and we can just talk and pray. Well, anyway, do we have any real prayer requests we really need to be mentioning here?
I would ask you to pray for Taffy. Yeah, Taffy. She's she's kind of given up. She's been in pain mm. for so long that she just. This is with her liver, is it right? So she's going to be getting a something done with this one that was put in. Well, Don't know. What do you do? That's, that's why she'd be giving up. If they don't have another liver for him, she doesn't even... John said she doesn't even want to be with him. She, she just wants to go home. She's done. She well, you know what? We prayed for your sister a few weeks ago, and then it was a few <laughs> days later, she's back home feeling great. That was a miracle. That and was impossible. It looked like she was probably going to die. Oh, she had, so. yeah. That it, she couldn't make it. I don't know how it happened. God is amazing. It's nice to be in on that. That's what happens when we pray. We're just seeing God acting, and He does that all the time. Um, I guess... Does anybody have anything else?